This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. It makes sense if you think about it even momentarily. Plants, landscapes, gardens, they begin with seed and they end with seed. Seeds are the alpha and omega of the plant world. The seed stage of the life cycle is the only time in a plant's life when it is fully mobile and when all of its genetic material and instructions are in one ingenious little travel pack ready and waiting for the right conditions to germinate the next cycle. If you think about this even momentarily, the importance of seed starts to become clear. With the consolidation of individual seed growers into multinational corporations, fewer and fewer seed sources and seed varieties are available to the standard market buyer. Combine that with the advent in the last 75 years of seed law, seed patents, and genetic modification of seed, and the state of the world's seed bank for habitat, for food, for utility, for beauty, for the genetic diversity of the future is in flux. Today on Cultivating Place, we kick off a mini seed series of conversations. Think of it as Seedy September. We start by speaking with Jerry Gettle, whose name you may recognize as the heart and head behind Baker Creek Seeds and the founding organizer of the upcoming International Heirloom Expo in Santa Rosa, California, September 11th through the 13th. Toward the second half of the program, we revisit a conversation with Michaela Cauley, past executive director of the Organic Seed Alliance based in Port Townsend, Washington, about the organic seed movement and industry. Finally, we wrap up with Kaylin Redwood, co-owner farmer with her husband Cam of Redwood Seeds, a 40-acre organic seed farm nestled in the foothills of Northern California and cultivating more than 230 seed crops for the diversity of climates in this region. And now to our conversation with Jerry, who joins us via Skype from Baker Creek Seeds in Mansfield, Missouri. Welcome, Jerry. Sure, appreciate it. Good to be here. So, I want to start with, um, I, I want to ultimately get into the very exciting and upcoming Heirloom Expo taking place in Santa Rosa in September. But I want to start a little further back from that, Jerry, and have you tell us a little bit about the history of Baker Creek Seeds and its heirloom beginnings, starting with you as a very little boy. In a, in a vegetable patch of your parents and your grandparents and your own sort of seed origins? Yeah, well, to start with, I guess I grew up in a family in the Boise Valley area of Idaho and um, actually Oregon, right on the Oregon border. And all my family, when I was small, lived in the area, and all my family pretty much grew a garden, you know, of some sort. Mm. And so as a small child, I remember when I was, you know, two, three, four years old, uh, up till I was about five years old, we lived in that valley. And the, my memories were all pretty much outdoors, doing things outdoors, whether it was picking mushrooms or uh, harvesting wild, wild asparagus, or, uh, you know, more particularly growing things. I grew things with my grandmothers, uh, both my grandmothers, my uh, one with, from a Danish German background, and then also my Mexican grandmother, and they gardened together often as well. Mm -hmm. So I 
grew all sorts of different vegetables, not necessarily just things that are common, you know, on the American table, but things that might have been either popular in their cultures or things that they just found in a catalog somewhere, things they they were always experimenting. And my folks were always experimenting. My mom and dad grew like up to an acre or so of vegetables and then all sorts of different fruits and flowers. So I pretty much grew up growing a little bit of everything. And my earliest memories of gardening, my own garden I grew when I was three years old was growing um, little little the scallop squash are sometimes mm-hmm. called patty pan squash mm-hmm. then also the little yellow pear tomatoes and yeah. from that little garden and gardening with my aunts and uncles and grandparents and parents um basically is where i kind of got the idea to um you know I, I knew right from the start that I somehow someday somehow i wanted to work with seeds it was always uh even as a small child i would look through the seed catalogs and dream you know of someday working at a seed company somewhere yeah and there is that wonderful, really almost iconic photo now that I've seen in um, talks you've given in workshops you've led of of you as a little thing, maybe three, sitting in just a big bunch of harvested gourds and pumpkins and other vegetables in the fall, all bundled up against the, the chill. And by the time you were 16, you were a member of Seed Savers Exchange. Talk about this kind of trajectory into saving and, and swapping seeds, which has such a great history. Yeah, well, I guess where I, I started getting interested in preserving the older varieties, I started noticing in the catalogs of the day, I started, you know, when I was small, I noticed things as I got a little older each year, things would disappear out of the seed catalogs. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there was starting to be a, a movement among smaller seed companies, and they were starting to release things called heirloom seeds. And so about that time, I noticed things disappearing. I noticed other catalogs and other people starting to talk about, you know, saving seed, preserving the old varieties. And I was definitely interested. So I started requesting every seed catalog I could, gathering information. And in that process, you know, um, over the years, I started hearing about Seed Savers Exchange. Uh, I started really requesting seed catalogs when I was 9 and 10 years old. But mm. by the time I became about, about 15, 16 years old, I joined Seed Savers. And from there, it really opened up to my eyes how much diversity actually there was. You know, I knew uh, a little bit from all the different catalogs, but when I got the Seed Saver yearbook and started going through and trading seeds with all the members and writing to the different members in various different countries and seeing all the things that were happening globally with seeds, both their disappearance and also the people that were saving the old varieties Mm -hmm. was just really inspiring and really got me thinking, you know, hey, I need to do something to help save these old varieties, whether it's commercial or whether it's just a hobby. At that time, I didn't really know. I was hoping, you know, someday I could do a full-time work with seeds because, you know, most people that do it as a hobby, they really, it's challenging to get, uh, you know, enough time Mm -hmm. to do really what you want to in the garden every day. It's uh, so neat out there. And that's a continual challenge even when you run a seed company, but at least every day I'm around the plants and working with the plants in some form or another. Yeah. And your your first catalog that you put together, uh, and I think just had 500 copies, talk about the beginnings of your seed business at that point. After a couple of years in Seed Savers Exchange, you know, selling seeds and trading seeds with different members, uh, I thought I might as well try it. I always wanted to try to do a catalog of some sort. I've been dreaming of it for years, so I thought I'd print a little uh, 12-page price list of different things I'd saved out of the garden and that I'd been offering to people in Seed Savers Exchange and just see what happened. And that first catalog went out to about 500 or so different customers, mostly in Missouri and a few surrounding states like Illinois. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
you know, I made about probably 1100 or $1,200 that year. I definitely knew it wasn't going to be a business at that point, but it was still a, you know, a really fun experience to connect to all these different gardeners, you know, several hundred gardeners that first year. And then the following year, uh, 1999 was right, right before, of course, what the year Y2K or year 2000. And everybody was concerned about, uh, whether their food so- supply was secure. So everybody was looking for heirloom seeds and that year, our uh, sales went up about 40%. And then I started to see, you know, the potential, maybe this can become a business. Mm-hmm. And also the, uh, the interest in um, non-GMO and organic and uh, alternative forms of agriculture, small agriculture, all these different words and terms were becoming more and more in use. And, you know, heirloom was just becoming um, on our consciousness nationally about that time, you mm-hmm. know, in the mid to late 90s, people were really starting to, uh, you know, people like Mr. Rogers went and covered stories about growing heirloom vegetables in school gardens. And, uh, you know, people like Martha Stewart were uh, showing them on her show and in her magazine. So it was really a big change mm-hmm. in that late 90s to, to early 2000s from, you know, everything being hybrids on the dinner table and in the restaurants. And that's really what I think uh, that we kind of rode that uh, little bit of a crest of interest in traditional varieties. Well, and you not only wrote it, I, 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 would, I would say that is humility speaking. You also really have helped to inspire and encourage it. And so describe for listeners who may not be familiar, describe for them what the catalog looks like now, how, how many varieties are there, how many continents and countries they represent, and how many you, how many catalogs you send out each year. So yeah, as far as what's represented in the catalog, it's basically a rainbow of color, of varieties. Like in front of me here, I'm looking at jalapeno peppers right now as I'm working on the next year's catalog actually as we speak. And I'm looking at um, four different colors of jalapenos, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, all these different vegetables that we know of, like um, this year we're also introducing pink celery. So basically we're representing varieties from about 100 different countries or so. And it's almost about the same every year we sell to, maybe about 80 different countries every year our seeds go to. So, uh, you know, all of the U.S., of course, but then also, you know, customers from China to Japan and England to Australia. And, uh, you know, it's it's really a broad range of countries where people are interested in these old varieties. Mm-hmm. And um, our collection every year, you know, keeps we keep finding new things. I mean, we didn't even know a really true pink celery existed. We were just familiar with what um, what's you know what's offered in the U.S., which is, is kind of a reddish. There's a few reddish colored celeries, but nothing's really true pink. So, you know, this last year we were able to find a true pink variety in China. Or, uh, you know, it's that's just one example. But, you know, over the years, every year we get new surprises. You know, this mm-hmm. year we're excited about black goji berries. And um, it's just on and on the different uh, different types of vegetables that are and flowers and herbs that are just totally stunning and totally, you know, make a new class of uh, vegetables almost like the snake melon that we've got that um, we ordered this uh, seed a long time ago when I was, you know, much younger and I grew it. And I thought it was interesting. It was beautiful. The long, curvy looking snake like uh, mm-hmm. fruit. But this year we gave them another try, got a bunch of seed from China, and we're growing them out again this year. And we cooked them, and we were amazed. The kids love them because they actually taste just like green beans. Mm. So it's, uh, you know, every every year we discover something new. It's like uh, I should have tried that years ago. Years ago I thought, oh, it was a neat ornamental. But this year we actually cooked them, and it's like all, all our kids love them. So it's, you know, a totally new class of vegetables 
that we can uh, add to, uh, you know, hopefully more Americans diets this coming year. And that's just one example out of many every year. So yeah. And how many total varieties do you offer in this year's catalog? About 1,800 in the whole seed catalog that we put out. Mm-hmm. So um, in, in online, it ranges between, you know, 1,800 and 2,200, depending on the time of the year and mm-hmm. what we're able to grow from year to year. And in terms of the number of countries that you have sourced from, I think this is one of the storylines in your work that really moves me, and I think many gardeners, is the work you have put into reaching out to other countries and cultures and communities uh, within the U.S., but across the globe, trying to connect with people in order to save seeds. I've, I've heard you say before that, you know, while you have this great diversity of seed you're offering, it is, there's almost like a personal sense of urgency on your side as to how many have been lost and how many um, are still out there that you would like to incorporate into the saving and the recording of. Yeah, that's one of the main things that I not only enjoy personally, but also, you know, it's just, it's just uh, you know, we find so many valuable plants by traveling. Um, each year, you know, we probably take about, oh, it, not me personally necessarily, but somebody in the company. Like right now, we have a guy in Thailand. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, we had somebody in Thailand and China. It, um, a little earlier on, we were in several other countries. So it's basically a continual, um, a continual search for seeds in some country. More often than not, we have somebody somewhere. Uh, and our greatest, probably number one focus is throughout Asia and then Europe and South America. Um, you know, we've been a little bit into Africa, you know, basically a little bit everywhere mm-hmm. looking for seeds. And um, it's just and also our customers are always looking for seeds for us. So we're always getting on like a daily basis, you know, somebody saying, hey, I have my great grandmother's bean or hey, I just took a trip to the Philippines and found a new eggplant. Would you guys be interested in trying it? Yeah. And um, a lot of times we get seeds with amazing histories. I mean, seeds that uh, came to this country from like Japan, one, the Yokohama squash came here in the 1860s from President Lincoln's ambassador to Japan, and they brought it here to the U.S. Mm. And it was popular in the U.S. for a short time in a number of catalogs, disappeared. Um, a, a seed saver in France had been saving it, and the French had been saving it. We got the seed about 20 years ago from the French. And th- we had the privilege this year of going back to Japan and handing it to a few s- different seed collectors there. And they hadn't seen anything like it. They think that it probably morphed or changed over the years into some of their modern-day squashes. But they were you know, kind of tickled that we brought something back for, to Yokohama that they had not seen, you know, at least in probably 100 – well, we don't really know how long, maybe 50 or 100 years. We don't know how long it's – disappeared from there. So that's the thing with seeds. There's always these stories that Mm -hmm. go with them and personal, you know, personal notes and cultures uh, are always exchanging. It brings cultures together around Mm -hmm. these traditional varieties, which now is part of, you know, part French, part American and, you know, originally from Japan, but all in the beginning originally came probably from Mexico. So it's, you know, it's just a continual uh, connection between cultures and continents. Yeah, and they really, they really do bring people together around um, the seed, the story of the seed, and then the the food or the plant that it comes from the seed. So, the one of the things you were just touching on really gets to the heart of, in terms of the the seed from Japan, you being able to help reintroduce it there to some extent gets to one of the key motivators, I think, for you, from what I understand, in terms of 
saving and preserving and recording genetic history and diversity. Yeah, it's definitely one of the main things we're focusing on is not just the, you know, where the seed's been, but also the personal stories, you know, as much as we can find personal stories, stories of, you know, where these seeds came from, and then passing the, you know, making stories along the way as we go, you know, making Mm -hmm. stories, making uh, these seeds part of our story, and hopefully part of our, you know, children's story and other people's children's story, making, you know, the first time people often remember the first time they planted a garden when they were a child, and they oftentimes remember the first thing they grew. You know, it's mm-hmm. one of those things that they connect with oftentimes <laughs> yeah. with grandma or, or aunt or uncle or whoever it was. It's, it's a kind of a bonding experience, not only with nature, but also with, you know, family members and sometimes extended family members. It kind of brings people together. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We'll be back after a break to hear more from Jerry Gettle about his work at the helm of Baker Creek Seeds and the fun of the upcoming National Heirloom Expo in Santa Rosa. Stay with us. It's September, and we're back, refueled and excited for the fall season arriving. Have I told you recently how much I enjoy knowing you're out there listening and often touching base with me through comments and emails, Instagram and Facebook? Hello to you all, and thank you for listening and interacting with us, me and Sarah over here. In our downtime, our thinking and germinating time, we've worked on a couple of series over these next two months, and I will be really interested in your feedback. What do you think about a series? Good? Bad? Indifferent? I kind of like the focus on one thing for longer than one episode, but maybe it gets to be too much. I don't know. If you register a response, please send it along. I'd love to hear, and you know how to reach me. Okay, now back to our conversation with Jerry Gettle and soon Michaela Cauley and Kaylin Redwood. I would love to explore a little bit your thoughts on the issues and the pressures of things such as Monsanto's Roundup Ready plants and other genetically modified seed in our system. Yeah, definitely that's an issue, you know, for us and pretty much anybody saving seeds. It's, uh, there's multiple different factors. You know, there's the factor of just losing the traditional varieties from, you know, the globalization of our agriculture. That's just uh, overall. But there's many different aspects, like whether these varieties are healthy for one and whether mm. they're safe for the environment for two. Mm. But um, for, as far as seed savers and seed companies like us are affected and home gardeners even that are saving their seed, you really have a hard time knowing unless you test each crop of corn in particular. That's the one that cross-pollinates the easiest because it's wind pollinated Mm -hmm. unless you test each crop you really have no way of knowing if your neighbor who may be farming gmo corn down the road or down the street somewhere uh you don't know for sure if that pollen didn't get into your crop yeah and if it did then you have uh you know lost potentially lost your genetic integrity of your crop you also uh you know potentially if you're if it was a bad enough cross you could be liable for you know saving patented genes Mm. um and also uh, you know, long term, you could, uh, you know, long term, if everything gets contaminated, we could lose a lot of the old varieties. And that's why it's important that people are saving these old varieties all over. And also looking for air, like us, in our case, we're always looking for farmers who are in isolated areas where normally they don't grow corn and try to make it work. It's uh, yeah. It works for us, but it takes a lot of extra effort. And then we test every batch that comes through. 
And um, it's a, you know, a huge financial uh, outlay. And also when there is, you know, contamination, it's a, you know, a big cost for, for everybody involved. Yeah. So it's uh, fortunate we've gotten better and better at it, but you know, in the early years, as much as 50% of our crops would get contaminated each year. Oh, um, and uh, it's gotten less and less. Fortunately, we've just been able to find farmers that are farther and farther from normal corn country, figuring out ways to isolate it by time and distance yeah. um, and other factors, you know, and we're able to keep our corn crops pretty much 100 percent pure now. I think uh, I think actually if, if we are going to sell anything, it has to be 100 percent according to our tests. So. Yeah. And you mentioned the, the concept of seed patents. Um, talk about where Baker Creek stands on that. We're definitely against, you know, patenting of life in general. You know, we really don't think, um, and the patents, you know, the problem is the patents are getting more and more invasive and stricter and stricter. And oftentimes, you know, these companies basically just, uh, you know, find something, they, you know, find something from a native, uh, you know, a native seed somewhere, they cross it with something they have and you can get a patent on it. And in some cases they just elect it for a couple of years, call it theirs and patent it if they can get a patent. And, you know, patents aren't given out for just everything, but, you know, if they can convince them that it's unique, oftentimes the patent office doesn't know if that variety maybe even already exists because mm. a lot of these old varieties or if you went to, say, uh, Japan and collected something, you know, they might not even be able to prove that that seed um, already existed and it could already get a patent. But uh, in general, you know, patents are just about basically controlling our food supply, keeping the farmer you know, from saving their own seed and keeping mm-hmm. you buying from the corporation. And that's, uh, I mean, it does have some financial benefits if it's a, you know, a popular crop like corn and soybeans. But on the other hand, you know, it takes away our, you know, our, our seed uh, sovereignty and yeah. our, uh, you know, security. The biggest thing is, you know, it takes away the security of farmers aren't used to saving their seed anymore. Um, if a seed company goes out of business, then, you know, maybe, 30% or 40% of the seed supply or 50% of the seed supply is instantly gone. So it's, you know, taking away, um, it's definitely, people are losing their, farmers are losing their ability to save seed mm-hmm. through, you know, uh, hybridization and, uh, you know, other other techniques and also, you know, just the patenting of seeds. And, and also farmers have just gotten um, used to the process over the many years. And oftentimes farmers, you know, it's simpler just to buy it, you know, and that's that's the risky area that mm-hmm. we are in right now. Yeah. How did you get from the Boise Valley to Missouri, by the way? My folks moved to Montana when I was about 12 mm-hmm. or actually when I was about five. And then they moved from Montana to here in Missouri okay. when I was about when I was about 12 or 13. So uh, and then I've been in Missouri for 20 some years now. So. And then that leads me to the question. How did you get to California for beginning a seed store and seed bank here and helping to co-found the Heirloom Exposition eight years ago? Yeah, it's uh, basically probably about 10 or 12 years ago, or or right after we got married, me and my wife got married, it was uh, 12 years ago. Maybe even before we got married, we started talking about, I know I definitely had thoughts of, you know, I've been to California multiple times. I have family on the West Coast, not a whole lot in California, but some. So I'd been traveled to California. I'd, you know, I always I always loved warm climates in the winter. So I thought, <laughs> man, it'd be nice to have a store out on the West Coast, you know, be able to go out there some for the winter. That was their initial thoughts. And then when we got out there, you know, we traveled up the coast from San Diego. And by the time we got to Petaluma, we were, you know, we thought we found the home we wanted there in Petaluma. We loved the town. 
We love the area, the counties around there. And uh, it's just been really good. And then a year or two later, we thought, well, why don't we, um, you know, we got talking at actually at an event in New York and talking to some people that were, we were at an event actually at Sotheby's in New York. It was a charity auction and got talking about, wouldn't it be fun to do an old time agricultural exposition like they did in the 1800s, where we could display all these different produce varieties. And uh, we were talking about where we should do it, Hudson Valley or in New York or uh, you know, somewhere in Pennsylvania and Amish country or, and then, you know, they said, you know, some of the people that were there said, why don't we, you guys are already out in Sonoma County. That was one of the areas, you know, that would, why don't we try it out there? And that's kind of, it just kind of started from uh, just kind of that discussion. We, it was basically started because we wanted to do an exposition of produce where people could come see, touch, taste and learn about, you know, meet the people that grew it. And, you know, initially the first thought was uh, doing something maybe in Times Square or something in uh, like Hudson Valley. That was kind of the original thought um, a year or so before maybe we actually started the Heirloom Expo. Yeah, and now it's going to be eight years old, and it's this fantastic just celebration for three days of vendors and displayers and growers and food people and color and the biggest pumpkins and the, the the most tomatoes in in the world displayed in any one place I think is is one of the great um, you know markers of of the exposition and if you have never been you you should definitely make an effort to get there one year because it really affirms something in you uh, about this human impulse to want to grow and love food I think. Yeah, it's definitely connects you more to food and the people that grow food than anything else I've been involved with. Um, it's uh, it's kind of a um, it's kind of a celebration. It's kind of like what fairs used to be about, you know, a celebration of the harvest, not just um, too much today. You know, fairs are about uh, cheap gadgets and rides. Mm-hmm. And fairs originally in this country were ag- agricultural expositions where people were coming together. You know, basically to learn about farming, learn about what other neighbors are growing and share ideas and facts and stories mm-hmm. and, you know, taste uh, what people made locally. And that's what it was really all about. And that's what we're trying to take it back to, um, you know, trying to make it into an event like, you know, would have happened, uh, you know, 100 or 150 years ago in the fact um, that it's showcasing the harvest, and then also bringing it up to date, talking about what issues we're involved with today, you know, mm-hmm. and, and making it on more of a global, you know, sense now than just a uh, fairs traditionally were local, which would be great to have a local fair throughout, you know, a local produce display throughout the U.S. but and, and globally. But unfortunately, you know, so many of the fairs have dwindled, dwindled in as far as what people bring to them. They, people have kind of gotten discouraged and they have busy life. So, we decided to make, you know, and as far as what we can do, one is all we can handle each year. So, uh, <laughs> But it, it brings people together from everywhere, and that's yeah. what's fun. You know, when I'm there, I meet as many people from far away as I meet from close. You know, it's mm-hmm. just as likely to meet somebody from Ohio as it is to meet somebody from uh, Santa Rosa. So it's, you know, really exciting. You know, every, every day it's like, uh, you know. I'm meeting people from Korea and Guatemala and Mexico, and, you know, it's amazing the diversity of uh, seed collectors. We get a little bit of people from everywhere, it seems, so it's really fun to the really serious seed growers and collectors come from a long distance, and then the more hobbyists are come, you know, from more local areas, so it's really great to bring all these people together and the school kids and uh, show everybody in th- three short days, 
you know, uh, what we can do for our food supply and how we can change it. Yeah, the aspect of it that is this global think tank, the the speakers and the lectures on these some of these really big issues in our in our food and our environment and our cultural uh, literacy of the day, I think, are so compelling. I think on the current brochure I read, you have something like 140 new speaker topics, and at least one of them, um, the, uh, maybe it's the theme for this year, is the Celebrate Global Gardeners, really focusing on this preserving of heritage and avoiding the GMO issue in the seed supply. What, what are some of the exciting speakers from your perspective that people can look forward to this year? Oh, it's just, uh, it depends on their topic they're interested in. Mm-hmm. But I, what I think we're really strong on this year is topics along the seed itself and uh, the produce itself. But we also cover homesteading topics, um, you know, how to survive off the land, how to make money off the land, a lot of that this year. But the that's probably the second main theme is, you know, how to actually make a living on your farm or garden. Mm-hmm. But then the other main theme this year is, you know, seed saving and preserving the older varieties. Probably my the speaker I'm most excited about who's returning again this year is uh, Dr. William Moyes Weaver, who's written about, uh, I think, 19 books now mm-hmm. and several on uh, heirloom gardening, including the, probably the, the biggest and best known book, The Heirloom Vegetable Gardener. Uh, that's probably the best known. It came out actually back in like 96, and he just came out with his updated version, which is better mm-hmm. than ever. But um, his stories and his history of our food, he's, all of his books deal with food history, whether it's seed saving or cooking, or et cetera. But uh, his stories and his uh, perspective on our food supply is probably uh, the most exciting uh, topic in my mind. But there's a huge host of other speakers that are equally interesting. That's just probably my you know, favorite. And the main thing I'd like to bring out this year that's different than before, we have about a 40 different, at least 40 different. I, I, it might be more than that, but it's might be more like 60. I can't remember the exact number, but we have a lot of roundtable discussions this mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's at least 40 to 60, somewhere in that neighborhood where people can sit down in small groups and break out into more separate topics. Like it might not be like if you're wanting to learn how to save seed, um, like hands on, these individual topics, or if you want to learn how to make pickles, or if you want to learn how to make cheese, or if you want to learn how to uh, grow squash, all these individual topics, you can sit down with an expert and be able to ask questions for an hour. And um, that way you can get your, not just uh, not just the lectures, like we have all the same lectures pretty much as we always, ha- always have had, mm-hmm. where it's for like large groups, but we have a lot of specific topics, whether it's, you know, making, growing your own cotton and making your own clothes, or, you know, a lot of these specific topics, you know, making kombucha, and on and on, there's just a whole host of, you know, topics on seed saving or GMO activist or, you know, preparing food in general. So a lot of people, you know, that's the thing. They can listen to a lecture, but they want to get all their questions answered. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're excited about. These roundtable discussions are going to be groups of about 15 to 20 people at each one. And the entire event is a not-for-profit endeavor. And all of the profits go to school gardens and food programs. I feel as though I would be remiss if I did not mention the incredible work not only the Expo does, but Baker Creek Seeds does as well to support nonprofit, volunteer, pro bono, seed saving, and seed education 
around the world. How did this get started for you, I think? And what what is the importance of that for you personally, Jerry? Well, it's, you know, profit is, you know, it, it's a hard balance. You've got to make profit to make a business run. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, what do we really need? You know, personally, what do we really need? Do we really need three cars, you know? Um, do we really need three houses? I mean, I think in America, people have kind of gotten the concept that, you know, everything, the bigger, the grander, the richer, it's really better, the happier we are. But, you know, these things are really not, are really have nothing to do with making us happy. Mm-hmm. What makes us happy is when we're actually, you know, doing projects we believe in, working with people and for people, you know, as a community. Not saying that, you know, it's bad to make a profit or it's bad to own a nice car. But in my, in my case, I'm not interested in any of that as far as, I'm interested in making a profit, but I want to, you know, we want to do something with Baker Creek. And I think most of the people that come to the Heirloom Air- Expo want to do something beyond just getting rich. Most of these people are coming because they love farming and in general farming doesn't make you rich, but it gives you a wonderful life. It gives you food and it, in general, you survive on it. And and if you do it right, you can do well and uh, so forth. So I think that's the big overall thing. The Heirloom Expo, there really it shouldn't be an event. We didn't feel to make money. It's an event to um, it's event. Hopefully, the small farmers that are coming can make a little money. But the event itself, we don't want anybody taking home money from the Heirloom Expo itself, except people like school garden projects, uh, you know, school kitchen projects, projects that are actually educate the children beyond just the Heirloom Expo. Mm-hmm. For the kids that couldn't come, we want this uh, whole enthusiasm to continue and to go from year to year and continue to grow area schools and school gardens making them more than just a place to learn about, uh, you know, the mathematics, but also a place to actually connect to the soil and the food they eat. Mm -hmm. I have read um, your wife, Emily, and um, some of her work in terms of making a home and what we consider to be home. And she said something really beautiful about how she was raised by her family, learning to sew, learning to cook, learning to grow, and considering everybody we meet, no matter where they make their home or where you're meeting them, considering them to be home folk to you in some capacity. And I feel like this is really borne out in the work that Baker Creek is, is continuing to do and to support in this world. Well, sure, appreciate that. But uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, me personally, I, I just, it's just exciting to connect people, get people interested in their food and get people thinking beyond the politics or whatever else is happening, you know, locally or globally, um, you know, in all these other areas that might be tragic and so forth. But bringing something that's a little bit, you know, happy and a little bit, you know, something they can do locally themselves on a local basis, whether it's, you know, just helping people get a good, healthy food supply or helping the community uh, you know, the community food pantry or kitchen or your local school or your local prison, you know, the, the gardening thing uh, and the heirloom expo thing goes far beyond just, you know, people getting healthy food. It, it's so much, uh, so many of the people that come to the heirloom expo are connected to these other groups and it just continues to, I think, you know, make a better, you know, a better society. If people can get away from their screens for a little while mm-hmm. and actually connect to the outdoors and uh, connect to each other, you know, it, makes uh, society think about, you know, what we're really uh, doing here, you know, re- are we really here just to make money, go home and watch the TV and get up and, and you know, <laughs> do it all over again. Now, you have three, four young children? 
four children. We just adopted, well, not just, but uh, about seven, eight months ago, we adopted two children from China. So, and, and then we have two uh, biological children, and they range in age from three to now thirteen. So, uh, okay, so we're t- busy with that as well. So. Yeah, I bet you are. Tell me, give me, um, give me a visual description of what you are harvesting from the garden and eating at home with those children and Emily this this time of year, Jerry? Oh, it varies because different kids have different things they like <laughs> to eat. But, uh, don't they? Me and Emily, the kids don't like them, but we eat a lot of bitter melon right now. Um, it's a Asian Chinese vegetable. It's really unknown, you know, in America as far as, uh, you know, the general population just doesn't. If you're outside of an Asian household, uh, and even in many Asian households, they don't eat it anymore, but that's one of my favorites. But uh, on any given day, we eat that. Um, we eat, of course, zucchinis and all sorts of squashes. Uh, a, a crop called water spinach, which is not even allowed to be sold in the U.S. because it's uh, invasive, potentially in the southern states where it doesn't freeze. Mm. Uh, we harvest a lot of that for our personal use. We can't actually sell the seed. But um, that's a really delicious green. And uh, we're harvesting Asian pears right now, some watermelons. It's on and on. There's probably a <laughs> 50 to 100 different crops throughout the summer that we're harvesting, whether we, you know, different types of basil and herbs and lemongrass. So it's a, uh, we eat a lot of Asian food. So, you know, probably um, 60% of what we eat or 70% is, you know, from Asian vegetables in general. Yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Jerry. Is there anything else you'd like to add about your work with Baker Creek or the upcoming expo? Well, I just hope to see everybody there, and it's only $15 to get in, so if people can come on down. And the, the nice thing is any any money, like you mentioned earlier, is raised. It all goes to the schools. Anything that's raised over and beyond, and a lot of groups make donations as well. So we have, like, different sponsors donating things to help the school garden projects. And then, of course, all the produce at the end of the event – Anything that isn't sold to raise money for home or for school garden projects goes and taken home with people. They buy the produce and take it home. Anything that isn't bought and raised funds for the schools actually is donated back to the schools or other, you know, you know, anything we prisons, church kitchens, soup kitchens of various sorts that are making food for either the homeless or for schools, etc. So the whole thing is kind of intertwined in the community. So if you want to volunteer also, we really encourage anybody, if they have a little extra time, we can definitely use volunteers because so much of this event is, you know, a volunteer uh, organized event. Great. Thank you very much for being a guest. Thank you so much. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Having heard the story and mission of Baker Creek Seeds, we're now going to revisit a conversation with the Organic Seed Alliance, a nonprofit that Jerry's work supports and which in turn supports small seed growers and seed advocacy on a national level. As well, we'll hear from one seed grower in Northern California, Kaylin Redwoods of Redwood Seeds. Stay with us. It's Jennifer. I find Jerry Gettle to be a real inspiration and the real deal of a plant lover and seed saver. That he was a member of the Seed Savers Exchange by the age of 16, that's excellent. And the rivers of his Danish and German grandmother and his Mexican grandmother, all coursing strongly through his life work, 
it reminds me how important the early childhood engagement really is. Although it's never too late to become a gardener. We know this as well. I was inoculated early. One of my earliest memories, maybe I've shared this before, but a good story bears repeating. So one of my earliest memories, and maybe I'm three years old, is of being underneath the potting table in the greenhouses at Berthed Greenhouse in Berthed, Colorado. It would have been 1968. I could not be more than three. My mother had gotten a part-time job at the nursery, and my father was completing his PhD in wildlife biology at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. So my older sister would have just been in kindergarten. I can see the loamy and perlite-studded potting soil all around me. I can smell it. I can hear the sounds of women's voices, smiling, happy, busy women and their chatting, productive voices. It was warm and humid, and to this day, that combination of perfumes and sounds when I enter a healthy greenhouse brings my mother and a deep sense of well-being to me, all in one inhale rush. It's perfect. What about you? early or late inoculation. The other thing I love in this conversation with Jerry is this almost universal recall so many plants people have of their first seed, right? It's like their first love. Jerry remembers his, Kaylin remembers hers, I remember mine. It was nasturtium seeds. What about yours? What was your first seed? You know I'm gonna want you to share with me and you know where to share. Send me an email. Send me a voice memo. Leave me a comment on this week's post on Instagram or Facebook. I'll get back to you and I'd love to share it with other listeners. Okay, now back to our seed stories with Michaela Cauley and Kaylin Redwood. Welcome, Michaela. Thank you. So tell us a little about what got you started in this work. Well, when I was in my 20s and figuring out what I was going to be when I grow up, um, I found agriculture and fell in love with it. And originally, I, I started working on an organic farm in California for several years. It was a diversified organic farm. And it always seemed to me a little bit of a... Um, incongruous that we planted conventional seed. We didn't plant organic seed because it wasn't available in the marketplace. And there were a few small packet businesses that sold a little bit of organic seed. And I remember I used to bring seed catalogs to the farm owner regularly and say, oh, look at these. Maybe we could buy some of these. But of course, garden packets are too small for a farmer to be able to plant a crop. So I uh, left the farm when I was in my mid-20s and went back to college and went to Oregon State University and studied in the Department of Crop and Soil Science and then went on and got my master's in horticulture. And after all those years of studying at the university, as I left, um, my intent was to go back and become a full-time organic farmer. And it still occurred to me that with a master's in horticulture, I never took a class in seed and so that was always kind of um, a little bit of a, a gap in knowledge and, in my mind, a key part of a whole farming system that wasn't being taught to the next generation of farmers. 
so I went back to California and worked in organic agriculture there for a while and missed the research side. I love studying plants. I love thinking about how systems work. And an opportunity came up for me to work with a company called Seeds of Change and manage their research farm. And I knew that I, I knew how to farm. Uh, I knew how to do research. I didn't know the seed part, but I knew that I could learn that side from the company. And um, at the time, most seed knowledge was held by private industry. So going into that sector of industry was an avenue to fill that gap that I had always felt in, in my farming experience. So I did that for a number of years and got into seed. And the more I got into it, the more uh, seed kind of draws you in. You know, a lot of people I know in seed, once you get bitten by the seed bug, you will probably do it the rest of your life. There were also a number of um, regional seed companies mm -hmm. that at that point in time, this is in the mid to late 90s, the term organic seed was not yet um, legislated in our organic rule of what farmers are, are, are required to plant if available. That didn't happen until 2002. So there were a number of companies, including Abundant Life Seed Foundation, mm -hmm that Organic Seed Alliance later grew out of, who were growing seed with small-scale farmers regionally and in an ecological manner. Define organic seed for us. So organic seed, just like any other organic crop, is simply um, seed where the seed crop was produced under certified organic practices on certified organic land. So one year of planting that seed in an organic system and saving the seed makes that seed certified organic. So that brings us to the Organic Seed Alliance. Tell us a little bit about the history of its beginnings and its mission currently. Well, Organic Seed Alliance uh, was founded in 2003 uh, by Matthew Dillon and John Navazio, and um, as an organization, uh, well, our, let me start with our mission, just to let you know what our mission statement is. Our mission is advancing the ethical development and stewardship of agricultural seed. So by development, we mean how we uh, develop new varieties, how we um, steward existing varieties for future generations. Um, and stewardship is really how we're mindful and how we um, pass on our genetics for uh, the future generations as well as how we maintain genetics to serve organic farmers and other farmers um, to feed uh, our society. Uh, we grew out of an, a nonprofit that was founded in the 1970s by Forrest Schomer, and that, or, that organization was called Abundant Life Seed Foundation. And as I was mentioning before, during that early era of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was an increasing consolidation in the seed industry that was resulting in a reduction of diversity of varieties available in the marketplace. and a shift toward a more industrialized model of seed production that left behind kind of the uh, on-farm seed conservation efforts of our ancestors because it used to be that, that farmers uh, grew and saved seed along with their crops. 
So Abundant Life was focused on uh, a a collective of farmers uh, producing seed and collectively marketing it to other like-minded farmers that wanted to buy ecologically grown seed. So it served as this marketplace for small diversified farmers to grow and sell seed. In 2002, the uh, National Organic Program implemented a new regulation that required organic farmers to plant certified organic seed if commercially available. And that clause was included in the rule because there was a lack of supplies. We've already discussed. But what happened at that point in time was all of a sudden those farmers that were growing for abundant life, they were in market demand because seed companies who were interested in moving into the organic seed market were looking for farmers who knew how to grow seed ecologically without the use of pesticide, and many of those farmers were already certified organic. At the same point in time in history, this is one of those ironies of the, of the world, of the universe, um, we had a, a tragic fire and we lost the seed inventory of Abundant Life Seed Foundation. Mm. So that fire in, in some ways was a strong impetus to move the organization in a direction that was already um, starting to come into play. And that direction was the increased need and demand for education about how we grow seed organically and how we develop crops for organic agriculture. And so this is really the focus of the mission of Organic Seed Alliance. Uh, We grew out of abundant life. We let go of the seed catalog. It is still in operation. Abundant Life Seed Catalog is still in existence and still has a focus on um, offering unique and um, uh, ecologically grown seed. And our organization now operates with research, education, and advocacy programs that foster healthy organic seed systems. So our approach to some of those big problems you were alluding to is to think about how we create a positive alternative. We also host a biennial organic seed growers conference, which is uh, a way to convene this unique sector of agriculture uh, all in one place every other year to exchange ideas and um, share their research and develop new relationships. So just to clarify, one concern about a diminishing number of kinds of seeds available from a small group of large corporate growers is a loss of genetic information and diversity, making one goal of the Organic Seed Alliance then to maintain a broad network of seed growers and savers because just on principle, we don't want to lose the genetic traits of any of the seeds if we can help it. Right. That's a very good point that that genetic diversity is not only important for the farmer that plants that seed, it's important for developing new varieties for the future, for new environmental conditions, for um, expanding and diversifying agriculture into new regions. Um, Those quality traits are essentially the toolbox that a plant breeder has to breed new crops for the future. And those smaller... um, markets were essentially a conservation effort. If you think about it, a gene bank is is really taking biodiversity and saving it somewhere um, secure for a period of time that it can be held in storage. Farmers growing and saving uh, seed is really a conservation effort in the field. 
Thank you, Michaela. Absolutely. We've been speaking with Michaela Cauley, Executive Director of the Organic Seed Alliance, about the history and current state of the organic seed movement in the United States. We're now joined by Kaylin Redwood, co-owner farmer with her husband Cam of Redwood Seeds, a 40-acre organic seed farm nestled in the foothills of Tehama County in northeastern California. They cultivate more than 230 seed crops for the diversity of climates in their region. Redwood Seeds is a relatively new member of the Organic Seed Alliance in one of California's several regional networks of organic seed growers. Welcome, Kaylin. Hi, good morning. So in a lot of the information about you and Cam and the beginning of Redwood Seeds, you describe yourself as a self-taught gardener. Tell us a little bit about your personal journey to how you came to your your love and passion for plants and growing. Yeah, sure. Um, I would say that it it came to us in in our early twenties, and I was a student at UC Santa Cruz, and and coming to gardening was just part of um, my natural like awakening, you know, as many many people do in their early twenties, coming out of the stupor of being a teenager, and um, I have my worldview was expanding both politically and and in a sense of like social justice and, and learning to care for the earth was part of that. And um, while I was a student, I started, I, I took an organic gardening class my last year at UC Santa Cruz, and then and then I met Cam actually um, just by chance. We met when I was maybe 22. And he had to go back to New Zealand, where, where he's from, but he um, sent me these tree seeds from New Zealand, which I'll always remember. There were some native tree seeds, and these were really the first seeds I ever grew. And I, I, I grew them on my windowsill of my apartment in Santa Cruz, and I remember being so amazed that, that they, the new life that they cultivated. And before that, I'd, I think I'd killed a bunch of house plants, you know, so I didn't think that I... Had a talent for growing things, and um, and then from there, you know, Cam and I kind of went back and forth from continent to continent for for several years, and we uh, lived together in New Zealand for a year. And while we were there, his parents they actually kind of granted us like a quarter acre on their on their farm for us to experiment with our wild organic gardening ideals, you know, and. Um, so we had John Jevons' book about how to grow more vegetables on less land than you'd ever imagined, and we double-dug all of our beds and, um, you know, grew our first gardens there and and really fell in love with it, you know. And uh, from there, we really dreamed about having land of our own, and um, everywhere we landed from there, we kind of had a garden in a different space. Originally, I, I really thought that, originally I got interested in herbal medicine and thought that that was the, the path that I would follow. I still didn't have any idea that the seeds would be in our future. That was back in like 2002 and 2003. And ultimately, you, you came back to, to Northern California, which was your childhood home. Yes. And you found this 40 acres. And I love this quote from you that seeds eventually really captured your imagination. And you can kind of see that seed, pardon the pun, uh, in that first 
um, gift from Cam. So t- right. talk about the beginning of Redwood Seeds. Yeah, well, we um, like you said, we found we found our land in 2005, and it is up here in Northern California. It felt really good to come home. Um, for us, I guess seed saving really was sort of a natural progression of of our love of just gardening. And I remember our seed collection back in those days where, you know, we had packets of things from other seed companies, but then we also had, like, little plastic baggies of things that people had given us or, you know, seeds wrapped in paper and taped up with dubious labels of things that we'd collected off of plants we'd seen on the roadside or in other people's gardens. And so, you know, even back then we'd started just collecting seeds and and harvesting wild seeds that we'd found. And so it just seemed like a, the next step to, to, to include the seeds in the cycle of our garden. And um, in, I think in 2007, <clears throat> we, we certified, or we, um, yeah, we certified organic on our farm, and we actually got a couple of contracts to grow seeds on contract for Seeds of Change, Mm-hmm. And then for Fedco seeds as well, and um, and we grew like serrano peppers and uh, opal purple basil um, for seeds of change that year. So it was 2009 that we actually started selling seeds in little packets, and there was all of these kind of smaller seed companies in California starting up at the same time, answering that 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 call for organic seeds in the region. Your work now has also really expanded even more into education and advocacy. Has becoming part of OSA been an effective collaboration for you on that front? Yeah, I, I've um, for a long time I've been really interested in passing the, the education component of, of seed saving on to others. Um, you know, for the past five or six years, that's been more focused towards home gardeners, and I've taught a lot of seed-saving classes in the region. Uh, it's always been a, a, like a seed in the back of my mind that, you know, this information needs to get out to people who are already farming as well that, that might be interested in, you know, growing more seed for their own use on their own organic farms or who might be interested in adding um, seed growing to, to their diversified farm plan. And so it's has come at the right time to, to partner with the OSA, and, and there seems to be a lot of enthusiasm right now among organic seed growers to, to pull this off. And so we've got a group of, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 um, representatives from other organic seed farms and from smaller organic seed companies that gathered last year in 2015 and uh, with the with the mission really of you know long term of increasing the supply and the quality of organic seed for farmers in California and and nationwide as well. It seems like one of the exciting aspects of the OSA and its regional and national networks lies in the ability for shared information and shared resources which runs so counter to the privileged information stance of the multinational seed industry. Yeah, definitely. It, it was so inspiring when we gathered um, for this 
California Organic Seed Summit and to be in the same room with representatives from five or six other seed companies, as well as seed growers, as well as people who are just kind of on more of an activist level, um, to share information and to, to share techniques and to even share in, in some aspects like financial information, like how much do you pay for these crops, these contracts, and um, you know what kinds of equipment do you find to be the most useful for cleaning, you know, basil seed, etc. Um, and, and in general, there's a lot of excitement about that. I think that there's a sentiment among all of us who gathered that that to grow the movement, we do need to be open with each other, and that um, we're really gathering in a spirit of cooperation rather than competition. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kaylin. Seeds are foundational to us, to us all. As gardeners, as eaters, as residents on this great planet Earth with our fellow planet mate species. Jerry Gettle is the heart and head behind Baker Creek Seeds. Together, he and Baker Creek Seeds are founding organizers of the upcoming International Heirloom Expo in Santa Rosa, California, September 11th through the 13th. Michaela Cauley is the past executive director of the Organic Seed Alliance based in Port Townsend, Washington. Kaylin Redwood is co-owner farmer with her husband Cam of Redwood Seeds in Northern California. Join us again next week as the conversations and CD September continues. Next week, when we're joined with Ira Wallace of the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and their upcoming Heritage Harvest Festival in Charlottesville, Virginia. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast so you never miss a conversation, as well as to read more about and see many photos from this week's episode, head over to cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.